0: Thank you. Um, I love stories. Epic novels, multi-book series, biographies. The longer the book, the better. The more I can work, like, invest into the lives of characters, the better. I also like telling stories. And um, reading books to my kids, learning, you know, telling the, the stories of young children, you know, telling those to little kids and, and telling the stories of, of people who walked the faith before me. Um, it's just, I've just really, I really liked doing that. So, um, as I started preparing for today, I jumped into Esther's story and really, like, I wanted to know everything. And so I started reading commentaries and archaeological articles and anything Google would tell me. And I found so, so much. Uh, I started putting it away that really fascinated me, and then it actually started sounding more like a history lesson. And I figured that's not what we really want to hear. But for most of my life, the uh, Book of Esther was one of those books that's just kind of dropped in the middle of the Bible. It's about a third of the way in. It really doesn't mention anything before or after. The rest of the Bible doesn't mention her story ever. So I guess I needed to know how it connected, why it was there. What I found is that the entire book of Esther falls between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. Um, And, you know, Ezra's back in Judah taking care of the things that God has told him to do, and Esther is in Persia. I also found that most scholars believe that the book of Esther is not placed correctly in the chronological order of the Bible. There are many who believe that Nehemiah actually comes after Esther. That it was in her court, in her husband's son's court, that Nehemiah was the cupbearer. I also learned that there are some scholars who don't believe that the book of Esther is a work of nonfiction, They believe it's a story. They believe be, mostly because it reads like a Disney princess story. I mean that's how it's told to all of us as children. To be honest I spent a lot of time on that rabbit trail and came up to the conclusion that she was a real person and these are actual events. I think sometimes that we forget that each book of the Bible was an actual standalone book until the Bible was compiled into the book that we call the Bible. And that it was written in the story, in the storytelling style of the cultures that the story, for the people they were meant to reach. Um, Anyone who wants to explore that rabbit trail with me, come come talk to me. I can talk for a while about that one. Um, But as I spent more time with the text, I decided I just wanted to tell Esther's story. And to do so... I decided I was going to do it in first person. So, here we go. My story sounds a lot like a fairy tale. I know it. In some ways, looking back, I can't believe it either. I was an orphan girl who became queen and saved the Jews. My name is Esther. Though the name I was given at birth was Hadassah, I was born a Jew into the tribe of Benjamin, but my family was living in Persia. We probably shouldn't have been. You see, a few years before I was born, exactly 70 years after our tribes had been exiled to Babylon, Cyrus, king of Persia, took over the Babylonian Empire. He told us we could go home. Home, I've been told, was the land of Judah. It was a place where we would have had to start over. And we had done what God told us to do through Jeremiah when we were told of the exile. We built houses and settled down. We planted gardens and ate what they produced. Our people married and had children and encouraged our children to marry so that they too could have children. I'm not sure of the exact reasons why God, why my family decided to stay, but we did. I grew up in the city of Susa. When my parents died... My cousin Mordecai took me in and treated me as his daughter. My story, though I didn't know it at the time, begins three years into the reign of the new king, Xerxes. We were trying to get back to our normal lives after a six-month festival, and the king and his friends were still partying. We're told that after seven days and a lot of alcohol, the king decided he needed to prove to his friends just how beautiful his queen was. So he sent for her demanding that she leave the party she was having with her her friends. She told him no. I never found out the exact reasons why she told him no, but it could have been for any reason. Maybe she was having too much fun with her own friends and just didn't want to leave them. Maybe she knew what the king was like when he was showing off and she felt she deserved to be treated with a little more respect. I've even heard speculation that what the king really asked her to do was show up wearing nothing but her crown but I guess I'll never know. Anyway, no is not a word that Xerxes has ever responded to well. But now he was being told no by a woman in front of his friends. He was outraged. He was humiliated. And his friends played into that. When he asked his advisors what the law said should be done to the queen who had disobeyed him, they told him that he better act decisively and swiftly, so that their wives and the wives of the other nobles wouldn't think it was okay to stand up to their husbands. And so he did. And he proclaimed that Vashti, his queen, was no longer queen and would never again enter his presence. He also sent out an edict to all 127 provinces in the languages spoken there that husbands should be rulers over their wives. For the next couple of years, Xerxes Xerxes went back to expand his empire. He wins some, then loses greatly. And stories of his exploits were told far and wide. They say, there is this one place on his way to Greece where he had the engineers build pontoon bridges over a canal, and a great storm came up and destroyed the bridges. Xerxes got so mad that he ordered the sea to be whipped and fetters to be thrown into it, as if he could be punish the water for its disobedience. You see, he could be a little irrational when things didn't go his way. But when he returned from his warmongering, he remembered that he didn't have a queen anymore. So he talked to his trusted advisors about how to replace the queen, and they suggested an empire-wide beauty contest. As usual, Xerxes took their advice they sound out word for the most beautiful of the empire to be gathered. I don't know about anybody else, maybe some volunteered, but I was taken. I was going about my usual business, and the next thing I knew, I was on my way to the Citadel. I was terrified. My life as I knew it was over. Forever. I know that seems pretty dramatic, but maybe you don't know what that means to be part of this. Being taken into the harem means I will never be allowed to marry. I will never be allowed to walk freely. I will always be at the mercy of the king and his ways. The only men I will ever see again will be eunuchs, and I will live with women who only want to see the worst in me and want to see me fail. Mordecai knew this might have been my fate. There had been observations all my life about my appearance. We'd already discussed what I should do. We'd decided that I wouldn't reveal that I was a Jew and that I should just do my best, no matter what. Thankfully, once in the harem, I caught the attention of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. I don't know if it was because of my beauty or if he pitied me because I didn't want to be there, but he befriended me and provided me with good advice, good food, and seven attendants. All of us underwent a full year of beauty treatments. The first six months were largely focused on our skin. Given our climate and usual work, our skin was dry and chapped and tanned. It took several weeks of daily treatments just for our hands to become soft again. They also wanted to make sure we didn't have some sort of skin disease that could be passed on to the king. After the skin treatments became routine, Haggai and my attendants started working on the makeup and clothing that would would best highlight my features. I had the use of the harem's coffers, anything in the kingdom. I know it sounds like a year is a long time for all of this. But part of the reason we had to wait so long was to prove that we couldn't possibly be pregnant with any other man's child and pass it off as the king's. At the end of that year, we were each scheduled for our night with the king. We'd been schooled in proper etiquette, the king's favorite foods and scents, and things that I shouldn't share in front of children. Nerves were high in the harem. And it didn't help that as soon as our night was over, we were taken to another part of the palace where we were considered concubines. We had no idea of what to expect. My time came, and I found favor with the king, largely due to the advice I received from Haggai. Xerxes named me as queen. Me. I can't believe that there was even a chance that I could be queen, let alone that I am queen. I am in shock still as I went, as I look back at the ceremonies and feasts that were held in my honor. Shortly after I became queen, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate hoping to hear news from me. He overheard two of the king's guards venting to one another about the king and their plot to kill him. Mordecai passed the information on to me, and I passed it on to Xerxes. The guards were investigated, the truth was uncovered, and they were executed. Mordecai's intel was written in the legal record of the day. A few years later, when I'd been queen for about four years, Xerxes named Haman to be prime minister. He was second in command. Because of Haman's position, it was expected that the royal officials would bow down to him. But Haman, but Mordecai refused. I never asked why. I wonder if there was some interpersonal thing between them, or if it was because Mordecai was a Jew, and he remembered the news of Daniel being saved from the lion's den 50 years before, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being saved from the fiery furnace about 100 years ago. In any case, he just wouldn't bow. Haman was full of, full of himself and pretty vindictive. So when he was told Mordecai wouldn't bow to him, he decided he needed to punish everyone of Jewish descent. And he knew how to play Xerxes like a fiddle. He created a plan. He offered the king a large sum of money if he could be allowed to rid the land of a dissonant people. The king was so flattered by Haman's proactive nature that he readily agreed. He also let Haman keep his own money. Haman quickly called together all the scribes to get the word out. The date that was chosen by Lot was about 11 months from now, from then. He needed to get the edict to every province and in every language of the empire. The news hit Susa very early on, and Mordecai was devastated. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloths, and rolled around in ashes. He wandered the city, wailing. News of Mordecai's mourning came to me. I couldn't understand why he would behave this way, and so I tried to send him clothes so that he could come close enough that maybe I could talk to him. But he refused them. So I sent one of the king's servants, Hathach, out to him to find out why he was behaving this way. Mordecai sent a copy of the edict back with Hathak to me. He explained it to me just as Mordecai requested. And then he relayed to me Mordecai's request. I was to go to the king and ask him to save the lives of our people. My heart stopped. My stomach sank. I had trouble breathing. Did he know what he was asking? No one could go to the king without an invitation. Not even me. Didn't matter how favored I was. I sent word back to Mordecai, reminding him of the rule that anyone who approached the king in the inner court without being summoned could be put to death. I also let him know that I hadn't been called into the king's presence for over a month. Mordecai's response was to remind me that even as queen, I wouldn't be left out when it came time for the Jews to be killed. And then he reminded me that maybe, just maybe, this was the reason for everything that had happened in my life. I have to admit, his words rang true. I was still terrified, but I knew what needed to be done. So I sent word back to Mount Mordecai to send word to the Jews in Susa to fast, no food or beverage, for three days. And I and my attendants would do the same, just to prepare me to go visit the king. On the third day, I got up early. I instructed my servants to prepare a small banquet. I put on my most regal robes, took several deep breaths, and began to walk to see the king. I can't say I didn't want to turn back with every single step. I was still scared, and I didn't know how Xerxes would react. When I got to the inner court, the king was on his throne, facing the entrance. He saw me immediately. There was a split second when I thought of running, but then I saw him pick up his scepter. He extended it to me. The relief was so overwhelming. Somehow I willed my feet to move toward him. He greeted me warmly, telling me that whatever I wanted, up to half of his kingdom, was mine. I invited him to the banquet that was being prepared and asked him to bring Haman. Xerxes seemed pleased to fulfill such a simple request and called for Haman. While we were eating, Xerxes asked me again what I wanted. I wanted to blurt out my accusations against Haman right then and there, but I felt like I should wait. So I invited them to another banquet that I would give on the next day. Looking back, we now know that the next 24 hours would be life-changing for all of us. Haman was so pleased to be included in my invitation that he went home to brag to his family. On his way there, he saw Mordecai, who again did not bow in his presence. Haman was so angry about it that he was venting to his family, and his wife suggested that he erect an especially high pole to impale Mordecai on to to make an example of this disobedience. Haman thought that was a pretty good idea and did it. That night while the king was having trouble sleeping. I'd like to think he was trying to figure out what I was up to and what I would ask at the banquet the next day. While he was having trouble sleeping, he called for his servants and asked them to read the chronicles of his reign to be read. I'm not sure if they started at the beginning or not, but when they got to the part where Mordecai had uncovered the plot against the king years before, Xerxes wondered what had been done to honor Mordecai. He was told nothing had been done. So Xerxes decided he needed to change that and asked who was in the court right then and there. Haman had just entered the court. He was there to ask permission to kill Mordecai that day. So the king called for his advice. Xerxes asked Haman what should be done to honor someone who had done a great service for the king. Haman, full of pride at being asked to my banquets and his position, convinced that that Xerxes wanted to honor him, told Xerxes that the person should be clothed in royal robes and paraded through town on a horse led by one of the king's most noble princes. I wish I could have seen Haman's face when Xerxes told him to do just that for Mordecai and that he should be the one leading the horse. Haman did just as he was told, but went home horrified and humiliated over what he had been made to do. And as he was telling his family what happened, the king's servants came to get him to bring him to my banquet. We were well into our meal when Xerxes turned to me to ask me my petition and request, again telling me I could have anything, anything, up to half of his kingdom. And I knew it was time. I told him If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Xerxes was outraged. He demanded to know who had ordered such a thing. And I told him it was Haman. You should have seen their faces. Xerxes was angry, angrier than I have ever seen him. And Haman was horrified and terrified. Xerxes was so angry, he stormed out. And Haman stayed behind. He wasn't stupid. He knew the king was going to have him killed. So he stayed behind to beg me to save his life. And just as he was grabbing at my feet, as he was begging, Xerxes came back in. Xerxes assumed that Haman was attacking me, so he called for the guards and had Haman grabbed. One of the eunuchs that was there mentioned to Xerxes that there was this really tall pole that had been erected out behind Mordecai's house, and um, maybe or Haman's house, I'm sorry. Um, And maybe, maybe that would be a good punishment for Haman. Xerxes thought so, too. While Haman was out of the way, there was still work to be done. The king gave me Haman's estate, and once I explained my relationship with Mordecai, Mordecai was given Haman's position in court. He was now second in command. But that wasn't enough. The people were still in danger. So while Mordecai was still in court working out details with Xerxes, I again went to court, and again the king extended his scepter to me. I asked that the edict to kill the Jews be overturned, but Xerxes reminded me that by rule of land, no law given by the king could be reversed. It could be added to, though. So with Xerxes' permission, Mordecai and I wrote an edict allowing the Jews to take up arms and destroy anyone who meant to do harm to our people. The Jews were also allowed to plunder the riches of their enemies. I know it seems a bit harsh, but we needed to make sure that the Jews were safe. Maybe, just maybe, we hoped that we could deter those who wanted to do our people harm. On the appointed day, the nobles and VIPs in the provinces sided with the Jews because of Mordecai's position in court. Still, in Susa alone, there were 500 people that were killed. At the end of the day, Xerxes asked me if there was anything more I wanted from him. Haman's family was still alive, and I knew the Jews in Susa would not feel safe as long as they lived. So I asked that all 10 of Haman's sons be impaled, just as their father had been. I also requested that the edict to kill our enemies be extended one more day. My requests were again granted. When all was said and done, 800 of our enemies in susa were killed in addition to haman's sons in addition to haman's sons reports from the other provinces trickled in over 75000 people had attacked the jews and were killed in return the most surprising thing of the whole bloody event was that though the jews were given license to plunder from their enemies no one did There was a huge party that we, we celebrated the next day. There's a, there, the, there's a saying in our Jewish community that we always look for a reason to party. And oftentimes it's that they wanted to kill us, we survived, so let's eat. So we did. And it was written into the, the book of, of my story so that it would always happen. I've been told that it still happens today. It's the the celebration of Purim. So there it is, my story. An orphan girl who became queen and saved God's people. This sermon series has been devoted to showing God's redemption story through the lives of the women in the Old Testament. How does Esther fit into that story? She's not in Jesus' genealogy. Her story isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. God's name isn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. But if you look at the whole story, we see a person willing to lay down her life to save her people. Her story was only about 450 years before the birth of Christ. Was this God giving a foreshadowing to his people about how he planned to save all of creation? But what can we learn from Esther now? My first thought when I asked myself that question was the obvious one. Maybe God put me and us in this exact time and place for just such a time as this. Maybe he put us here at New Hope at the corner of Union and Richmond streets for a very specific purpose. Are we exploring that purpose? Are we just walking in obedience every step of the way until our story gets told? Another detail that struck out to me is that Esther didn't do this alone. Yet she ultimately went to King, the King alone. She did it with the strength of her community. She lived into that role that was given to her by God and her community. When she needed to go to the king alone, she asked for the rest of the Jews to support her. This is a community of believers here. What roles are we living into? Do you personally have a good community around you? Do you need a stronger community around you? take out a card out in the front of the chairs in front of you um it's we call them prayer cards here connection cards if you're new if you can register our present your presence with us that'd be great but it's a time to reflect ask god where he is leading you ask god how he can help you strengthen your community ask god what community support you need And write it down. Give God that prayer request and allow your community, a group of people that meets regularly to pray over these cards, a chance to pray for you.